Hey everyone, welcome to the A to Z of sex, or the A to Z of sex if you're in North America. I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm a psychologist, sex and intimacy coach, and a gender, sex, and relationship diversity therapist. And I am working my way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. I created this podcast to help you learn to express your desires, learn more about desires, spice up your relationships, and create those sizzling relationships that you have always wanted. I do this through solid science, real-life stories, and conversations with an exciting array of experts. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies that will help you choose the relationship style that works best for you and create exactly what you want and need. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and you can take advantage of the subscriber bonuses. And if you want to know more, head over to DrLoriBethBisbee.com and sign up for my email list so that you can find out exactly what is going on in my world from week to week. But for now, come join me and enter my world of sex and relationships. See you inside. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the A to Z of sex or the A to Z of sex, depending on what part of the world you're in. With me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I've been working with people for the past 35 years, helping them to create and maintain amazing relationships with sizzling sex and without shame. I am working my way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. And this week, the letter is M. And we are talking about mismatched libido or mismatched desire. I've got an amazing guest today. Cindy Darnell is a clinical and somatic sexologist originally from Australia, who's now based in New York City. A psychotherapist by training, Cindy now runs a global consulting practice to individuals, couples, and polycules navigating relationships and sexual difficulties, plus professional mentorship and case consultations to clinicians and sexologists worldwide seeking to deepen their understanding of the links between psychotherapy, sexology, relationship work, and somatic practice. She's a clinical associate of Pink Therapy UK and a board affiliate for University of Wisconsin Stout Sex Therapy Certification Program. Her first book, Sex When You Don't Feel Like It, The Truth About Mismatched Libido and Rediscovering Desire, Roman and Littlefield comes out in June. Her numerous academic works are published in the Journal of Sexual and Relationship Therapy and the Journal of Sex Education, among others. And her expert opinion on sex and relationships is frequently sought out by media outlets worldwide. Welcome to the show, Cindy. It's lovely to be here. And uh, congratulations on your media success also. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So, um, you know, the last time I had you on the show was in 2020. Was that that long ago? It was. I was looking. It was a long time ago. Wow. Haven't haven't times changed since then? Yeah, really. (laughs) Seriously. Um, I really enjoyed, when I saw what the topic of the book was, I was really excited. Um, Because it's a subject we don't talk enough about. Hmm. And when we do talk about it, I think it's a fairly standard 
line that yeah. comes out. Um, and, you know, we all don't know what we don't know. So I can be guilty of that too. You know, it was, I, it was wonderful. It's wonderful to read your perspective on this. I think the first thing that stood out for me was this idea that actually sex is important. Yeah. Yeah. So I think sex is important, whether we want to have it or we don't want to have it we still yeah. need to talk about it because it is this thing that is just implied that everybody is doing it or everybody wants to do it or everybody should be doing it and for those of us who struggle with the inclination to even you know to get started to struggle to work out how we feel about it by not talking about it by sweeping it under the rug we leave it to fester and bubble away and then it you know, it can have a negative effect of sort of leaking out either in non-consensual ways, in inappropriate ways, in aggressive ways. And, and we don't want to do that. We, we need to start having meaningful conversations about what sex means to us, whether we want it or not, whether we identify as asexual or allosexual. We need to be able to talk about our relationship to sex, our relationship to the erotic, and especially with the people who may or may not be wanting sex with us. It, it, it's so fundamentally important that we can have a framework to even begin to discuss that. And that's really what the, the gist of this book is about, not telling people, you know, how to be great in bed, but how to have a relationship with sex that is meaningful on their own terms. Yeah, I, and then that's what was so amazing to me. I, it's it's interesting to me because we now have more identities. I actually did a show on this recently where we talked about identity. Um, all of people's preferences are now identities. Right. Ten years ago, it was a preference. Now it's an identity. The problem I have with that is identities appear to be fixed. For most people, most people think of identity as fixed. Now, you and I know that's not true. We move right. along spectrums, but people think of identities as fixed. When you think of an identity as fixed, that means there's no change. And that also means that people then don't explore it. Mm -hmm. So particularly around um, the, the grade asexual part of the spectrum, mm -hmm. what I'm finding is people who would have come in 10 to 15 years ago and maybe done a bit of exploration about why am I not feeling this? Mm -hmm. Or why have I never felt this? And some would, would come to the conclusion that it's just not for them, but others would discover things that they could work on that might actually change their relationship to sex and mm -hmm. physical intimacy. Now we don't do that because now we have a label for it that's an identity that we have to respect therefore what that tends to mean for therapists is they don't dig into it if there's an identity it's disrespectful to to question how somebody came to that identity right i think though <clears throat> we still can leverage some inquiry around that because if a client is coming into session and saying um you know, I mean, if, they, if they're coming in as part of a, a part of a relationship and they're saying, you know, we're struggling to, to talk about sex, we're struggling to have some sort of satisfying sex. And, you know, I identify as asexual and the other one is allosexual. 
there is still room for discussion about, well, you know, because asexuality, we know it ex exists on a spectrum, right? So it's not just yeah. flat out, no sex, thanks, you know, I'll just have a cup of tea. Like there are degrees. Yeah. And so for some people who are like absolutely no sex ever with myself, with a toy, with nobody, you know, okay, cool, that's fine. But that cohort are especially small. There yes. is this wider range through the gray and the demi and, and the other variations where there is leverage, where there is intentionality, where there is possibility. And also, and as you know, I'm certain, sex doesn't have to be, you know, traditional pants off rubbing genitals. It can be, you know, tantric erotic meditation. It can be BDSM. It can be all kinds of other stuff yeah. that isn't, you know, pants off sex necessarily. And I still, and I think that, you know, we, we also in that need to be able to start opening the conversation to go, okay, so if pants off sex is a bit boring for you or just not interesting, or you just like, eh, gross, um, that's cool. How about hugging, kissing, bathing together, um, you know, whacking each other with floggers? Like there are just so many options of, of activities that partners can do to build connection and build erotic playfulness, you know? Yes. So, and using that word, why is that so important in coupledom? Erotic playfulness? Mm. It's, it's important for those who identify that it's important, first of all. So I wouldn't yeah. categorically say it's important all couples must engage in erotic playfulness. You don't right. have to do any of the things. But if you as a couple decide or as a partnership or as a relationship structure, however you're doing things, if you decide among yourselves that erotic playfulness matters, then it becomes a thing that you need to talk about. If one party in the relationship is unsatisfied and says you know I, I need for us to have an erotic connection and the other one or the others say mm, no it's not important to us then we still need to have a conversation because the one who does want to have it still needs to be able to to work out a way to get that sort of satisfaction met, maybe not in this particular structure. Maybe they do need to step outside that unit, whatever it is, to find other play partners. And then we still need to have that conversation. So even if we decide, you know, erotic connection is not for me, it's still something that we need to become competent at discussing so we can have meaningful ongoing relationships sexual or otherwise with the people in our lives who matter to us. And that's one of the biggest issues, isn't it? This um, inability to talk about it and talking about it often means um, doing focused conversations uh -huh. in, in the past. That's what it's meant. It's been, the, the model has been, let's come up with ideas of how you can do. And what you're saying is actually, let's put that on a side. Because what's more important is actually exploring the meaning of this, what's going on, how you feel about it, and all the other aspects before you even look at the doing. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, so much of what we have been offered in terms of sexual education, sex advice, sex knowledge is based around this assumption that everybody wants sex and that everybody wants the same kind of sex more or less 
And the truth is that there are some people who don't want sex or they want it in a specific context, in a specific way, at a specific time of the day, uh, under a specific set of circumstances. And that's not weird. That's actually really common. And then there are people who want to have all the sex all the time with all the people in all the ways and they're just down all, you know, under, under all circumstances. And those people exist in abundance too. So the trouble with the way that we talk about sex in the public sphere in particular is the, the difficulty of trying to be inclusive, trying to be, trying to allow for nuance and so instead we just say sex and we presume that everybody knows what we're talking about when sex can be so incredibly varied because if we just default to penis and vagina sex or just default to penis in anus sex or just default to, you know, uh, fingering or whatever, you know, is the default in your particular cultural community. Um, when we just default to the thing, it shuts down the conversation around pleasure, around why we're there, around possibility, around how do we want to feel, what's motivating us, what might make this better for me right now. And we don't have those conversations because it's assumed we will all like it, we will all be satisfied at the end of it, whether we have an orgasm or not, and that we will all just want to keep on doing it until the end of time because sex is good for you, sex is healthy. That's what they tell us in the media, and it's bullshit. If you're having sex that's bad, that's not good for you. That's not yeah. healthy. It's it's an endurance test, and it's crap. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you remember you can swear on this program, right? Okay. I, I, I mean... You know, I, I will say, yeah, sex is good for you. Good sex is good for you. Yeah. And and don't assume you know what that looks like. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think is so important is this challenging the idea that we that we actually know what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And it, there's a standard. Yeah. And it's one of the problems is, you know, like when you're putting things out in the media and when you're when you're writing blog posts and, you know, and social media and all the ways in which people get. Unfortunately, people get most of their information these days. Yeah. There's value in that because information goes far and wide, but everything is very restricted in amount and therefore nuance gets lost. So people, yeah. people use shorthand just like they do when they do diagnosis. Diagnosis was originally a shorthand so that one clinician understood what the other clinician meant, but the shorthand of sex doesn't work. No, because there's so many it, possibilities. Right. And it reduced the very thing that makes sex uh, let's say engaging is the possibility of, you know, of, of feeling something, of connecting in some way, of experiencing something new, perhaps. Um, all of these things, the, the, you know, the flush that we get when we start with a new partner or a new relationship is often the thing that people want to that's the that's the point that people will refer back to and say, I want to feel like that again. But that feeling is present because they are able to bring a sense of openness and hope and expansion to the practice. They haven't decided this is how it's going to be for the next 20 yeah. years at that point. Yeah. Um, yet when they get, you know, a year, two, three, whatever years into the relationship and, and the excitement part is gone, they start either blaming themselves, they blame their partner, they blame the kids, they blame the dog, they blame the mortgage, they blame all these things. And all that stuff has an effect. Absolutely. I don't mean to downplay that and stuff and say it doesn't matter. It does matter. And 
we still have our hands on the steering wheel at that point. And that I think is what a lot of the mainstream sex advice omits is this idea that sex, good sex just falls out of the sky and horniness just falls out of the sky. And that is not true. That right. is not the, 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 the creation, the creative part that you have in it is gone. It, yeah. it's, I remember a long time ago, um, I spoke with a guy about interest and he said, interest is directed attention. And he said, try and experiment, direct your attention at something for a lot, for a few minutes. And tell me, you don't find something about it interesting. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you know, when you go into the dentist's office in the old days, when we didn't have our phones, this always tells people how old I am. And they would have magazines lying around. And they were always the most boring magazines on the planet. You know, right. it was just like, you know, um, standing and looking at the wall monthly or, you know, you know, at things that I would never want to look at. But if I didn't have anything with me, he said, try it next time. Go in. Don't have anything with you. So I did. I went in and I looked and I picked up one of these magazines. Within 10 minutes of reading, he was right. I found something I found interesting. Would I ever go back and do that again? No. But the point of the experiment was to highlight the fact that I was creating the interest, not, yeah. not the magazine. Yeah. Um, and when people would say to me, well, you know, that person finds me beautiful. And it's like, well, we start with you finding you beautiful and projecting mm -hmm. that outwards. The same with sex, that excitement, you generate that excitement. The yeah. excitement doesn't live in your partner. Yeah. Which is where we are trained to believe that, that's why the sex was so good with, you know, Joe Bloggs over there. The sex was amazing. I'm right. never going to get that again, as though you had nothing to do with it. It yeah. was just being done to you. Yeah. So your, you know, your idea in terms of pointing out to people that actually you have some control here. Mm -hmm. yeah, and if yeah, you I actually understand. can talk about it and look at what your motivation is. Yeah. What is it you actually want? Yes, we know you want the, the physical bit. But what does that mean? Yeah. What, what's going on emotionally? Yeah. How do what you, you want to feel? feel? And and historically, what has helped you get there? Yeah. Are such important questions. Or for people who say that they don't know how they want to feel, or they don't know what, or they've never felt the thing that they imagine that they want to feel, you know, then that's where the role, I guess, you know, of fantasy and creative imagination and possibility yeah. and risk taking. And I talk about all of that in the book. At times, yeah. you do have to stretch yourself. At times, you do have to take a risk. And it might feel a little bit overwhelming. And I think certainly, um, you know, his, maybe like the, you know, the Instagram generation who are all about, you know, I've got to be safe, I've got to be this, I've got to be, you know, and all sort of wrapped in cotton wool. Yes, certainly when it comes to trauma, absolutely. And for those who want to start expanding outside of the circle of familiarity around eroticism, taking deliberate, intentional, calculated risks, I think is crucial. I don't think you can have a nourishing, no. satisfying sex life if you're not willing to color outside the lines a little bit and, and take a couple of risks. You're going to have to, because if you just stay there eating your cornflakes and, you know, sticking with what you know, then you know what's going to happen. Nothing's going to change. And you'll get bored. And you'll it, get bored. It, it, yeah, that's game over at that point because you have checked out. Yes. 
I mean, I, I think that uh, that's one of the things that I think is so important. I do think that people have in some ways lost the capacity to take calculated risks. They either take no risks at all or they just like throw. They just go wild, jumping yeah. off of roofs. <laughs> right. You know? And right. That, I mean, one of the things that's so exciting at the beginning of a relationship is, as you said, possibility, mystery that comes from not 100% having, def- knowing the person in front of you, but also not 100% having defined what this is. And so that's exciting because, wow, everything's there. But then I hear people say all the time, but you know, now if they're monogamous, they say, well, now I'm married, I'll never have that feeling again. Well, well that, you can have that feeling again, mm. but you, you've got to figure out what it was and then create in order to, and that means taking a risk. Yeah. That means stepping outside those lines. Yeah. And that you can actually take risks without doing something devastating, but you do need to be willing to accept that some risks won't go well. Mm-hmm. And which that's is why part of I it. often, yeah. yeah. In the book, I talk about, you know, the conditions that create satisfaction. And one of them is acceptance. One of them is yeah. being able to accept when you do your self-inquiry, whatever it is, and the book teaches you how to do it. Yeah, um, amazing that you get to a point of realizing, huh, this is what my mind wants. This is what my heart wants. This is what my body wants. They may be the same. They may not be the same. Then there's a little bit of, you know, more work around that. But regardless of what you discover about yourself, people who have, you know, satisfaction with their sex lives, one of the cornerstones of that is that they accept what they find about themselves. That can take some time because you may discover things about yourself that you wish were different. You may discover that you're into a thing that you wish you were not into, or you may discover that you are not into a thing that you wish you were into. And being kind to ourselves, again, not talking about coddling with cotton wool, but being kind to ourselves by understanding that if we can accept ourselves as we are, we don't have to like it, but if we can accept what we've discovered on this journey of erotic inquiry, it does make it so much easier to talk to our partners about it because we can treat ourselves with a level of compassion, which invites them to treat, to treat us, us with similarly. that. Yeah. yeah. And that is so important. So often people get stymied by that. They find something or they they discover they're into something or they think they're into something. And I always point, I like to point out fantasy is fantasy. Reality is reality. And there are some things that don't translate in the way you expected them to translate. We had a, that happen on the show where um, there was a, a couple where the man was really excited about seeing his partner with another man. Mm-hmm. He said he didn't know where the fantasy came from. Um, he said he wasn't attracted to men or he didn't think he was, but he was like watching his hot. And I, and I you know, spent time normalizing. I was like, voyeurism is a big thing. Loads of people are voyeurs. I mean, so that might've been all it was. That's why there's know. a billion dollar porn industry. That's what I said. I was like, you know, porn, you know, this is why people watch porn. I said, that's like live porn in your living room. Yeah. But he's, he didn't know. And so we sent him off to try them off to try. 
Um, and they, they went to a social where they played games and got to kind of experience a little bit. And then they picked somebody to spend the evening with. And it didn't go anywhere. And it didn't go anywhere because it, it, at that point, because it didn't feel right to him. Fair enough, right? Fair enough. So you stop and you take stock. But he was like, in my fantasy, it goes like this, 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 this. And I said, as he described it, I said, well, interestingly, that bit wasn't there. That bit wasn't there. And these were all things that were just real world things, right? We gloss over the emotional feelings you might have in a fantasy. You don't go, and then I felt jealous because I was looking at their equipment and comparing their equipment to mine, right? You don't see that in your fantasy, but in reality, you might. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing about the fantasy generally is that, you know, it'll probably engage the mind uh, and the body at some level, but we don't, we can't always predict how, how we're going to respond emotionally right. to acting out sexual fantasies. And, and again, I go into that in the, in the book about not all fantasies are designed to be acted upon. Yes. And some are, some are not. And we have to be able to, again, monitor ourselves emotionally because in a fantasy, we have complete control of everything in real life. We don't. And shit can go wrong. Shit can go really well too, but yeah. shit can go wrong. And then we have to have a, a little backup contingency plan about what do we do if one or both or all of us feels emotionally challenged by this? How, how are we going to have an agreement in advance to manage this? And if, that, if, if, it, wrong? If, if all the emotions come up and so in threesomes, that is with new people. My experience is that the most common thing is somebody feels left out. And, you know, again, that came up on the show, which is nice that because that's so common. It was nice to see it. Yeah. But despite having discussed having a plan, they didn't have a plan. And there's a poignant scene with this young man turning over in bed while these two women are going at it. He's faced away because he feels totally left out and unable mm. to respond and unable to, you know, his, get an erection because he's feeling, he's all in his feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And having, you know, when he processed that, he was like, what can we do to prevent that, those sorts of things happening? And I said, well, it's good form to actually talk about this in advance. I mean, we did talk yeah. about that. Let's discuss it in advance and, and realize that you cannot predict so you need to be able to keep talking. I don't know why people think that once they're in the sexual experience, nobody gets to put a hand up and go, um, excuse me, <laughs> right? I'm feeling, <laughs> can we just slow down? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in it yeah. and you can't say anything. It's just sometimes yeah. all it is, is I'm feeling self-conscious right now. Mm-hmm. And if your partner turns around and says, well, I think you're hot as hell or something really you know, encouraging, it's like, oh, now I'm not feeling self-conscious. Sometimes it's not that simple. We we both know that it can be complex, but sometimes it's actually really easy. It's just about having that skill. And that's the other thing about the book. So one of the things that I think is great is that you are taking people through how to do this type of exploration. So you're giving them the actual skill. So it's lots of good information, folks, but it's also practical. Yeah, and I really wanted to make it practical because I think historically 
the other books that have been written over the years about desire and and libido and mismatched libido and such and such have all been sort of theoretical about you know you need to be excited and you need this and you need you know passion and distance and mystery and all this stuff which you know is cool all of that stuff is important but it leaves people thinking well how the fuck do I do that like how where do I you know how do we do this and it is for me what was always missing was that there was no uh no scaffolding around how to begin the the discussion but the discussion actually starts with yourself and so for this with this book it is designed for mismatch libido um and so obviously people in relationships but it is also really useful for people who maybe are not in relationships to still work on what I talk about in the book the erotic template which is your erotic template and it's going to be different to everybody else's and that's the point of it it's like a fingerprint it teaches us how you know how our minds and hearts and bodies respond to sex and where it's not like a fingerprint actually is that it can change over time so it's not set in stone it's not a monolith and the questions and the practices and the and the activities that I offer folks in the book are designed to be used over and over and over and over it's not a one and done thing yeah yeah and you go back and and you look and from the start of the book to the end of the book and you go back and you think well now that I know this maybe I'm going to change this bit at the front and you know and then it again it gives you a framework to then confidently discuss with a prospective partner if you're single this is what I know about myself this is what I think I might like what do you think you know and it's a and great it, place to start a relationship. You know, yeah. I, I I love that you're actually addressing single people as well. And I think people sometimes don't don't understand the utility in doing these things before having a partner. But I, the more you know about yourself at any given moment in time, the more power you have in creating fantastic sex. Yeah. And fantastic physical intimacy and emotional intimacy yeah. because you know about yourself and you can communicate. Yeah, exactly. Right. So those and are the two areas that are so important. So important. And it's the funny thing, you know, because we give ourselves these liberties when it comes to, you know, to food. The, the way that we discover the food we like is by tasting a different variety of foods. And we think nothing of eating Chinese one night, Indian another night, uh, Mexican another night, Japanese another night, and and then working out and saying, well, you know, actually, I, I don't like spicy food, but I really like um, you know, rice-based dishes or whatever it is. But the only reason we know that is because we give ourselves permission to try stuff. True. And we don't do that with sex. And we have to, I think, in yeah. order to work out what we like, especially for people who don't know what they like, which often, in my experience, uh, is cis women. They don't often, when I say to them, what do you like sexually? the most common response I get is I don't know. I don't know. Me too. And, and in all my years of practice, that remains the most common response. Um, And the other one that's really common is when I say to couples, well, you know, how, you know, what do your conversations about sex usually look like? I can't tell you how many times I have people in long-term relationships that tell me we've never had a conversation about sex. And that's what has to change. And so when folks are like, I don't know how to start, where do we even begin? That's where my book, I think, really comes into its own because it teaches you how, like literally 
how to talk about sex step by step in a way that is meaningful to you, not in a cookie cutter thing that you would find in a listicle on the internet. It's very, very nuanced for your very specific relationship to being alive. Which is, which is what is necessary to getting the best yeah. of what you want, whether that is, as you say, whether that is actually, I don't want any of this. Yeah, including that, including I don't want sex at all, which is perfectly fine. And there is room for that in this book, too. So what not I'm, how to make you into a you know sexual superstar. Right. It's how, to, it's, how to be real with yourself. So one of my one of my one of the myths that I find still most annoying is this idea that there's a point at which we don't have sex and we don't care about sex anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, An age where we're An done. Age related. Yeah, right. I just did an article, um, um, contributed to an article on this about baby boomers having great sex because uh, I was asked about it for people, particularly people over the age of 50. Um, And there is a myth that, you know, there's a decline. Um, And when I talk about it with people, I hear, well, but, you know, there's physical problems and differences. I said, yes, but if you're motivated and it's something you want, there are also solutions. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it's too, like, again, for mature bodies, there is this assumption that for sex to remain robust, that we have to be fucking like we were when we were, when we were in our 20s. Yeah, right. And that's, that, that's, you know, I mean, that it can happen, but it's unlikely, not because of any, you know, um, physical shortcoming, but just because 20-year-old sex gets boring after a while. As we mature, as we've tasted over, you know, lots of different foods over our lifetimes, by the time we hit our 40s and 50s, we could maybe have had a pretty robust palate that we can say, all right, this is actually what I like. And that sort of jackhammer style sex that's fed to us in our 20s as, you know, wild and fast and all of the things gorging ourselves on sex in our 40s and 50s may be less appealing physiologically and psychologically because we we know ourselves better or if we don't it's a really great time to start getting to know yourself better and not to feel like because you don't want to fuck like you did in your 20s that it's game over it's just it's just you're playing a different game now and 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 the one of the things i think gets in the way of some of this is while there is a lot of one type of information out there there's also a lot of places where there aren't Women's health services are diabolical. Um, And I mean, down to really not giving women the information they need about how their bodies function before, during, and after the menopause. Mm -hmm. And and that actually, you know, things like your ovaries still put out hormones Mm post-menopause. And so if you have a hysterectomy and your ovaries are removed, you will need hormone replacement. Because yeah. having no hormones is a not acceptable state of affairs. Yeah. yeah. Right. But the idea that women's, the attitude towards women and their sexual health is just like, well, you know, t- time's up, you know, you're over. Why would you be worrying about this? Right. And that's because the- of that link to reproduction for cis women, whether they are straight or queer or whatever, it's still that thing of, you know, you're 50 and you stop having periods and you can't have babies anymore. And, oh, well, bad luck. That's it. You're out to pasture. It's like, fuck that. That's, that's, and again, like the research confirms that that is not true, but 
the way that it is talked about that sex again sort of falls into this heteronormative dynamic it has to be penis in vagina it has to involve orgasms it has to involve this and that and it just it, it shuts down any inquiry for women about what does my body want well, how do I want to feel what kinds of touch might I like now and then ideally also partners who will shift with you and be open and willing to having these discussions it can be challenging if one partner is very invested in doing this work and the other one is not yeah not that that's a very difficult situation can we also say it loud for the people in the back that orgasms are not necessarily the be all and end all of everything yes yes yes, yes. let's say that louder and put it on a banner and get the marching band orgasms are great for some people some of the time but for the vast majority of people they are not a huge motivator yet it is one of the things that we use to decide whether or not sex has been successful yeah. we will leverage that by saying you know well did you have an orgasm at least as opposed to did you enjoy the connection you were having for the duration of the time you were having it what made it good you know because and, if it was just an orgasm you can just do that by yourself no, and usually much more quickly yeah, much more quickly know, and efficiently <laughs> and a lot of people of you know all genders and orientations will say often that with partnered sex they are looking to feel something they're looking to experience something in a solo sex session they might just be looking for an orgasm fine great do it but bringing that uh you know a quick five minutes before i fall asleep at the end of the day intention to a partnered sexual situation and then wondering why your partnered sex life is unsatisfying there is part of the problem it's yeah. the way you're approaching it by treating it like a you know a stress relief masturbation session it's not supposed to be fulfilling it's supposed to be you know just something that you literally you do at the end of the day so you can fall asleep like having a you know in the old days having a whiskey and a cigarette yeah um, you know if we switch that over for rubbing one out before falling asleep fine but don't treat your partner like a masturbation tool yeah, and, and so Unless they're into that. <laughs> yeah, truth. Um, I mean, so often that's not something that, again, that's not something that people are taught about or talked about. Yeah. So you get people showing up, men as, as well as women, all bodies, all genders, showing up feeling um, inadequate or um, I think about things like um, when there's been prostate cancer and, right. um, and there are permanent changes to orgasm for some, yeah. for some people. And now suddenly there's not, there's no reason to do this. There's nothing there or the person feels broken because they can't reach that pinnacle that they think is that's it. That one point. Yeah. yeah. And um, again, it's that old style, you know, sex education, that sort of masters and Johnson model of, you know, excitement, plateau, orgasm resolution, which is, you know, literally 50 years old now. And yeah. it was cool and revolutionary at the time, but sex research has come a long way since then. And we know that orgasm is, you know, it's cool, but it's not an, a, an incentive for a lot of people. It's not an incentive, especially for a lot of women. And I think women and, and men in couple dynamics like that 
that is a big conversation for folks in heterosexual relationships to have because that, that can really screw up a lot of straight couples, that story about orgasm. The other thing that uh, occurs to me that we don't talk about is that sometimes, whether you're monogamous or not, the change might have to be seeking your pleasure elsewhere. Yeah. And that that's a conversation that can be incredibly difficult when you're talking to a monogamous couple. But there are, mm-hmm. there are sometimes when people get to know themselves and they communicate, well, there are new and interesting ways they can bridge a gap that yeah. work really well. Yeah. But there yeah. are other times where the gap is not bridgeable. And then what are your options when the gap is not bridgeable? So people often don't talk about separation in any kind of a positive manner or looking outside the relationship in any kind of a positive manner because those are seen as negative outcomes. Right. They're not seen as as pathways to, to pleasure, pathways to joy. They are seen as failures that, you know, people talk about, ending relationships or having well we had to resort to having an open relationship as as some sort of shortcoming and it's like my goodness that what a wonderfully advanced couple is able to have a really rich conversation about how are we going to address this situation that exists between us what are our options let's lay it all out on some butcher's paper and really get into it that to me is a sign of a very advanced couple not a couple who are failing yeah, and I, that's always a huge issue for people. And that, again, is part of that old narrative. Yeah, and those th- that's the thing. So those old narratives that a lot of us have just absorbed by osmosis, when I ask people, you know, where did you learn about sex? Maybe they learned a little bit at school, but it was usually some version of where do babies come from. Um yeah. They certainly didn't learn about pleasure. They certainly didn't learn about, uh, you know, kink and BDSM. They didn't learn about how to manage, you know, complicated emotional conversations, how to navigate threesome. Nobody learned that at school. So when we do access that information these days, we maybe get it through the internet, which is great, or we just absorb it through, you know, pop culture, music and movies and whatever. Um And even with access to all of that information, what is still missing, I think, for a lot of people is how to integrate the knowledge that we find. Once upon a time, that information was obscured. Now with the internet, that information is abundant. You can Google literally any sex act that you can imagine. Someone somewhere has done it, videoed it, made a photo of it, written an article about it. Anything you think of, it exists on the internet. Fantastic. Now, we have all this information. What do we do with it? Because a lot of people get this information and then they feel overwhelmed or they think, well, you know, so-and-so is doing it. Why aren't we doing it? And then they use it as leverage against their partner rather than creating an opportunity for connection. And so this, again, is where my book really talks about you can be into anything and everything, whatever it is, that floats your boat, there is a possibility for that that exists in my book. This is how to structure the conversation. This is the kind of self-inquiry you need to do to make that knowledge 
integrated and meaningful. And so, so much of this is about integrating because people don't know how to integrate the information they find on the internet. And that is really the, what the essence of this book is about, is how do I make meaning of the stuff that's in my mind, in my heart, and in my body? Absolutely. And I think that's, that's a great way of describing it. So if people want to find this, where are they looking? So all of the online uh, book retailers uh, will carry it through the UK, through the United States, uh, and Australia has different limited options just because it's the biggest island so far away and New Zealand. But all of the, the major online retailers have it uh, in a hard copy or an e-copy. And it will be out in June of 2022. And uh, I encourage folks to get into it. And they can find, find it very useful. Yeah, they will. They'll find it really useful. It is really, it's a great, it's not, an, I mean, it's direct concepts, simple, not easy. I always say that about things like some of this stuff seems so simple, but the practicing it. Yeah. Is not necessarily easy. So simple, not easy. And um, not really entry level, even though you can use it as entry level. Yeah. It's stuff you can do over and over and over again to inform your conversations about any aspect of sex and relationships, not just mismatched desire. Yeah. If people want to find you and see the other things you do, where's the best place for them to look? They can go to my website, which is cindydarnell.com, C-Y-N-D-I-D-A-R-N-E-L-L.com. And there are links there to all my social media stuff. My online courses are there. Um, there's a lot of information, actually, on my website. It's pretty comprehensive. But uh, and uh, any workshops and things that I have coming up are also listed there. And get on my mailing list. That's probably going to be the most reliable way to keep in touch with me just because social media are constantly threatening to boot us all off all the time that's right and the mailing Who list knows what's going to happen <laughs> the mailing list for, for info folks you know i'm on a lot of people's mailing lists and yeah. sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not yours is actually very useful because it does oh, give thanks. it gives the bits that you're writing about are great but also it gives you very clearly what's going on next where people can find you if they want to work with you so you've got access to all the things that you need. So I would encourage people to get on the mailing list in addition to following social media, because as you say, we're frequently censored. Mm -hmm. So thank you for coming and talking with me. This has been great. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be back in the saddle with you. My pleasure. So guys, next week is the letter N. Um, I have no idea what we're doing yet. As you know, I often decide the week before or the week of if you have topics you want or people you want to see me interview please drop me a note at lauribeth at drlauribethbisby.com or dm dm me on social media please put in the subject line topic suggestion or interview suggestion I get a lot of email. And so if you actually want me to see it, that's what you need to do. Follow me on social media and please, please, please leave a review. People are awful at leaving reviews. So I offer an incentive. If you leave a review, you will be put in the raffle for 20 minutes time with me, one to one. 
face to face via Zoom because we're still not doing much in person. I raffle once a month. So I give one of these ways, one of these a month for people who do reviews. So review on Spotify, Apple, doesn't matter which service. If you do a review, you'll be in with that and contacted if you win. Have a wonderful week. I'll see all of you next week. Be safe. Here we go. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the A to Z of sex or the A to Z of sex if you're in North America. If you enjoyed the show, please do leave a review wherever it was you listened to it, but especially head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Reviews really help the show get out there. If you want to support my work, you can support it through my Patreon page. That's Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee on Patreon.com. You can also head over to DrLoriBethBisbee.com and subscribe to my free mailing list, which will keep you updated as to the activities I am getting up to and any special appearances. For people who subscribe to the Patreon, there are special broadcasts, merch, um, and the opportunity to get discounted tickets to a lot of the events that I do. Knowledge gives you power. The more you know, the better your relationships, the better your satisfaction and joy. If you've got suggestions for the show, comments or questions, do email at lauribeth at drlauribethbisbee.com and I will try and incorporate them. Have a wonderful week filled with loads of joy. Thank you.